one of the pastors here at Common Ground. It's great to have you all here this morning. And um, this morning is going to be, I don't know, it could be a little interesting. Um, I pray that, that you are ready to respond as God uh, lays that on your heart. So three years ago, I vowed to never again be involved in ministry. <laughs> Moral of the story, don't make stupid promises. All right, we'll see you next week. <laughs> My computer is not turning on right now, so this might be kind of interesting. Nope. This was how I responded to being sinned against by fellow believers whom I love and I was in partnership in ministry with. In my mind, being obedient to the Holy Spirit and doing things the way scripture had outlined meant that the outcome would be confession and repentance uh, followed by reconciliation uh, for all the parties involved. When that didn't happen, I started to flirt with anger, with bitterness, with vengeance. Oh, he's a pastor, he can't say those things. If that's what you think pastors are like, let me go ahead and get a big fat needle and pop that bubble for you. Pastors are not on a pedestal, we are just like everybody else and we struggle to respond to being sinned against just like everyone else. Because of who God is and what he's done in my life, I don't have to hide my struggles and my mistakes. And guess what? Neither do you. Today we're going to continue through Philippians. Uh, Derek took us last week through the end of chapter 3, uh, where the Apostle Paul, through the leading and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, ends the chapter with a reminder about our citizenship, how it is we are citizens of heaven. And then he exhorts believers to stand firm, to persevere uh, in chapter 4, verse 1. This is a common theme in this letter, this idea of perseverance, of running the race. But so is the theme of citizenship, your identity. We're going to talk a little bit more later about this citizenship theme and what it means. But first we need to talk about what it doesn't mean. Because this is kind of important. It doesn't mean you won't experience conflicts. It doesn't mean people, including believers, won't sin against you. It doesn't mean you forget all your painful memories or that life will actually go the way that you have planned or desired. In other words, it doesn't mean you won't struggle with remaining sin. These are part of the hurdles that Derek uh, mentioned last week in, in his sermon. When we ignore this reality, when we ignore the reality that sin still remains, we can become in danger of becoming complacent in the way that we guard our hearts, in the way that we guard our responses, uh, in our interactions with each other. This can lead to all kinds of trouble, like anger, bitterness, jealousy. So what are you supposed to do with all this remaining yuck? What are you supposed to do with the pain of being sinned against? the struggles that you are going through, the sin that you can't seem to overcome. Our big idea this morning is the joy of your salvation means that you can experience God's peace, even in the midst of conflict and struggle against remaining sin. About your story, uh, particularly how sin has 
uh, impacted your life, both from being sinned against, but also how you responded to it for many years? Thanks, Ben. Um, when I was a young girl, uh, before the age of 12, I had been molested and by three different men and beaten and mentally abused by one. And as I got older, I became, I came to know Christ at the age of 11, but really struggled with not having any mentors in my life or anyone to help me along with my faith. I fell away from the Lord, never really told anyone uh, significantly about what had happened to me in full until I was an adult and just about to get married with my husband. And um, as an adult, that really messed with my head. I didn't know how to deal with everything that had happened to me. I just buried it and pretended it never happened. And then just kind of went on my merry way thinking that everything was gonna be grand. And it turns out that that's not really the case. <laughs> so um, after I started having children, I started having severe mental issues and psychological issues. I um, almost committed suicide. I had a really difficult time. I was at that point trying to go to church and had been told by some uh, church leaders that I just had to forget about it and get over it and get on with my life. And I just didn't know what to do with that because it made me feel like the crazy one that um, I didn't know how to, to move past that. I got into some very intense counseling for numerous years, but the interesting thing was it helped me heal, but it never healed my heart because I think that the answer to that is only Jesus. To me, my sin in that at a younger age and as I got older was unforgiveness. I got the counseling. I could deal with things. I was doing better, but I never reached a point where I could truly let go and forgive. So my response to that sin was a choice of unforgiveness. And I had to learn as a believer to dig deep into that, into God's word and to being mentored by people and to really trust that God had a plan and that my plan wasn't the best and that my ideas weren't the best and how I thought this should go was not the best, but his was, even though it was so countercultural mm -hmm. and um, went against everything that I thought should happen. But until I really forgave, I never healed. So what do you do with painful memories, with being sinned against, with, with conflicts and our constant struggle against remaining sin? Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 2 through 9. If you do not have a Bible, there's a blue one underneath the seat in front of you. And in that Bible, it's page 1085. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. He writes, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be, be known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Our text today starts off with a conflict between two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche. Other than their names and what we read about in verses 2 and 3 uh, about their partnership in ministry with Paul and others, we know absolutely nothing else about these women or the context. But catch this. This conflict had to be significant enough for Paul to hear about it 800 miles away, before Instant Messenger, before Twitter, uh, before the Pony Express. Paul received this message 800 miles away, and he uses the Greek word beg. He says, I entreat, I plead, I beg that these two women agree in the Lord to resolve this conflict, to, to reconcile. These women were unable to, to resolve this conflict by themselves, so Paul asked for help from trusted people in Philippi. The details are vague, but let's not miss the seriousness of it, okay? Think for a moment about your last big conflict. If you're having a hard time remembering, turn to your spouse or sibling and they will be happy to remind you. <laughs> if you're in, in all quarrels, reasonable, reasonableness goes right out the door. You stop making sense, right? My, my father recently told me this story that illustrates this point perfectly. He says that a, a pastor was visiting another church as the guest preacher. The church had recently gone, undergone some renovations. They had uh, new carpet, new paint, uh, new pews. Yes, the story is old. The visiting pastor also noticed that there was a, a strange coldness coming off of the people there, uh, a strange unseen tension uh, in the air. Before going up to preach, he was sitting and he felt the Holy Spirit impress upon him to do something that was both completely out of his character and entirely inappropriate considering where he was. But this, this urgency in his heart would not go away and he was arguing with God. He said, God, no, there's no way I can do that. And God was like, no, you need to do this. So the visiting pastor said, okay. So as he approached the pulpit, and this was one of those big, wooden, thus saith the Lord, when you slap it, it resonates like a gong kind of pulpits. You guys remember those, right? Can we get one? No. <laughs> when he approached the pulpit, he started kicking it and hitting it, and he just obliterated the thing until it was nothing but splinters. The room was dead silent. But then all of a sudden, a person on this side of the room stood and looked at a person on this side of the room and they made eye contact and suddenly they met in the middle and they're hugging and they're weeping. And then all of a sudden the whole room stands and everybody's mingling in the mi middle and everybody's hugging and everybody's crying and the, and the guest preacher's like, what did I do? <laughs> and he turns to the actual lead pastor with this question on his face and the lead pastor said, during our renovations, half of the church wanted to replace the pulpit. The other half of the church said, no, this pulpit had been blessed by God for six generations and there's no way we're going to get rid of it. And this had created a rift 
in the church where relationships that had been going on for 50 years were now open hostility. Now, before you rush to judge the people in this story, go back to that recent argument you had with your spouse that he or she just graciously reminded you of. Were you any less unreasonable? Verse 5 of our text says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Read that within the context of not just this vague conflict between these two women, but in your conflicts as well. When reason goes out the door, it's a clear indication that sin has prevailed. So how and why does this happen? Well, the problem is remaining sin that warps and corrupts your desires and motivations. But you might ask, well, how can this be? I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. I've been saved through Jesus Christ. Haven't I been set free? Yes, you have been set free from the power and penalty of sin, but not its presence. And the remaining presence of sin in the world means you will often still experience the consequences of both your sin, for instance, having too much to drink and getting a DUI, or the consequence for the sins of others like the drunk driver that hits you. Sin remains because of the curse of the fall we read about in Genesis 3, but also because of the two natures at war within us. Romans 7 describes this this inner battle uh, perfectly. Paul writes in verse 21, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. This constant struggle between choosing to please God or please self is the very fabric of our reality. Literally everything you know, everything you've done, everything that you, that's been done to you, everything that you think, say, do, your attitudes, your desires, your motivations are all defined by this, re- this reality, this struggle, until you go to be with Jesus or he returns. Are you finding it impossible to forgive a past hurt? That unforgiveness is sin battling within you. Are you discontent and fantasizing about having a different life other than the one that God has given you? That discontent is sin battling within you. Are you dissatisfied with how circumstances turned out, didn't go in your favor, and you feel resentment and anger and bitterness knocking at the door of your heart? You guessed it. That's sin battling within you. Nothing, I repeat, nothing robs you of peace faster than entertaining sin in your heart and allowing it to bear fruit. While you walk this earth, this battle against the remaining sin is inescapable, but it's not unwinnable. We'll get to that soon. Now, imagine you and another person, both of you experiencing this internal struggle between pleasing God and pleasing self. You find yourself disagreeing about something, the color of the curtains, whose parents to visit for Christmas, whether or not to replace the pulpit. We're going to do that, right? No. Suddenly you find yourselves having to contend not with just your own sin battle, but with the sin battle of another person, a mutual sinner. 
James 4.1 says to Christians, James 4.1 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. Y'all aren't killing each other, right? We're sneezing, but we're not killing each other. <laughs> but remember what that word means. In, in Matthew 5, uh, 22, Jesus talks about murder as the content of your heart, anger, hatred. It's the same as, as actually doing the act of murder itself. You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. The problem of remaining sin is a big, big deal. And we ignore its cause and its effect at our own peril. We've identified the cause, which is a life focused on pleasing self versus pleasing God. But what are the effects within the context of the body of Christ, in, in the context of community? Well, we see this all the time. Divorce and other broken relationships, judgmentalism, a critical spirit, jealousy, gossip. Ooh, we can't talk about gossip. Authoritarianism, impatience, unreasonableness, favoritism. Those are some of the outward community manifestations of a life centered on self. But what about for the individual? Well, gosh, we could, we could list those until next week. Anger, bitterness, resentment, a noisy soul, a guilty conscience, a lack of peace, a lack of confidence to be in God's presence, a desire to flee from community with other believers and community with God. Walking by the flesh rather than walking by the spirit. Both of those demonstrations of sin, whether in community or in your own life, ultimately also damage the testimony of the gospel in your life. Okay, that's some heavy stuff. You might be wondering, wow, Ben, you got all that from Paul begging Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord? Well, no, I got that from the Holy Spirit pleading with citizens of heaven to reconcile and be unified for the sake of the gospel, a theme that is constantly mentioned in the New Testament over and over and over again. I'm a firm believer that the Bible is breathed out by God. They are his words, that it is authoritative and sufficient for addressing all of humanity's sin problems. And all humanity's problems are caused by sin. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy against the problem of remaining sin in our lives? If God's word can define the problem, it will also define the remedy. So how do we overcome heartache? How do we resolve conflicts? How do we deal with the hurt that remains when we are, are sinned against? Immediately after recognizing the, the conflict between these two women, in verses 2 and 3, Paul writes in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? And why does Paul say it twice? If, if Scripture repeats itself, you should probably pay attention to that. Rejoicing in the Lord is a call to remember what it took to reconcile you to God. It took the sinless, perfect, 
Lamb of God, sacrificed upon the cross where he bore the penalty of your sin. And that penalty is the eternal, justified, holy wrath of God. This is a huge deal. But wait, there's more. There's so much more. He also bore all of the hurt, pain, and suffering you would experience in this life because of sin. Did you know that? Some 800 years before Jesus took on flesh, the prophet Isaiah gave this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, declaring he, meaning the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but as from whom men hid their faces, but as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Catch this next part. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Sit in that for a moment. Sit beneath the weight of your sin within the shadow of the cross. If your response is anything other than joyous, humble gratitude, sit longer and keep sitting until your soul can bear it no longer and you have no choice but to stand and say, thank you, Jesus. That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. It means living in a perpetual state of joyous, humble gratitude for what Jesus has done on your behalf. Nobody here on earth gave you that joy. The joy of your salvation, real joy, didn't come from people or life circumstances, which means people and life circumstances can't take that joy away. Since this joy is also the source of our peace, people and life circumstances can't take that peace away either. This is a major theme in this letter. Will you still struggle with sin? Absolutely. Will you sometimes still fail? Will painful memories tempt you towards anger and bitterness and resentment? Of course. But here's how we respond to that from Psalm 51. David writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. As we struggle with remaining sin, our joy is restored through confessing our sin to God, which means agreeing that we did wrong, 
by repentance, which is the putting off of a life dedicated to self and the putting on of a life dedicated to pleasing God, have you, have you been sinned against? Like, like grievously sinned against? How can you respond in a way that pleases God? This is tough stuff, okay? I'm not gonna come up here and say this is easy because that would be a lie. This is tough stuff, but no one said it would be easy. We never just suffer the thing that we're suffering, but also suffer the way we are suffering that thing. This is why it's so important that we recognize Jesus is right there with us, bearing that pain and creating opportunities for us to become more like him and for him to take that pain away through our responses. So what pleases God? Well, verse 6 gives us a very clear way. Verse 6, verse six says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your, your, your requests be made known to God. That word anxious is better translated as, as the word worried. And it actually has this amazing visual connotation in Greek of being torn in multiple directions, being torn apart, of being double-minded or, or, or sitting on a fence. Jesus uses the same word in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, when he commands, not suggests, when he commands that we not worry about our daily needs because we belong to God. The contrast here is between our desire to control outcomes versus trusting God's faithfulness, which he has demonstrated over and over and over again already. Paul is urging believers to demonstrate faith in our good and wise and sovereign God for all of our concerns, all the details, all the problems, all the struggles, always within the context of that joyful heart, of that thanksgiving that comes from our salvation. I have no intention of reducing this down to a formula, but it kind of sort of is, so bear with me here. 1 Thessalonians 5 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How do you please God? By giving thanks in all circumstances. But how do you give thanks to God even when the pain is raw, the grief is near, and the suffering seems like it will never end? How do we do that? Through ceaseless prayer, demonstrating faith in your good, wise, and sovereign God. Why should we pray to this God? Because he is the one who saved you and gives you cause to rejoice. If you're not regularly rejoicing in your salvation, guess what? You're not going to be praying, or at least you're going to be praying the wrong way, as it says in James chapter 4, verse 1. If you're not praying the right way or praying at all, you're not, absolutely not, going to be able to respond to sin and being sinned against in a way that's pleasing to God. So how do we, how do we keep from being unreasonable, like it says in verse 5, or, or double-minded, being torn apart, like it says in verse 6? Well, by choosing to please God over pleasing ourselves. Verse 8 says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, 
If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Find yourself struggling to forgive a past hurt or experience victory over remaining sin? Do you struggle with unforgiveness? Are you, are you flirting with bitterness? Or maybe it's already taken root in your heart because of what people have done to you. Do you fantasize about having a different life, having a different result for your efforts that haven't come to pass, and so you're, you're questioning God's wisdom? You know what all those have in common? Your thoughts. And who has control over your mind? Jesus summed up the law by pointing out what we can actually control. Our heart, our soul, our mind. Essentially, the things that we choose to dwell on. So what occupies your thoughts? Is it true? Is it honorable, pure, just, lovely, commendable? Is it how praiseworthy God is and worthy of your worship, your time, your energy, and your resources? Or would you be horribly embarrassed if your thoughts were somehow projected for everyone to witness? Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your past, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Is that what it says? The renewal of your mind. You can't control your past any more than you can control your future. I can't control or change yesterday's thoughts, which means how I'm thinking about yesterday and all the days that have passed and those past hurts, that has to do with today. That has to do with how I'm thinking about those hurts today, because that's what I can control right now. In Romans 12.1, Paul says, he, Paul calls this, this daily commitment to thinking about praiseworthy things as a living sacrifice, meaning it's ongoing so long as you are alive. Anyone who claims this process is easy is a liar. Anyone who thinks he or she can do this alone is self-deceived. We need each other. Paul wraps up this section with an appeal to discipleship. He writes in verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. None of this works in isolation. We need to practice rejoicing in the Lord together because sometimes I don't feel like it. Or I've let the cares of the world weigh me down and I need you to remind me of my joy. We need to practice rightly trusting God with our concerns together because sometimes the hurt is more than I can handle alone and I find myself becoming bitter and I need somebody to carry that load with me. We need to practice renewing our minds to focus on things that please God together because sometimes sin blinds me to my reality and I might need your perspective. Earlier I said that while you walk this earth, this battle is, an, is inescapable, but it's not unwinnable. This passage reminds us of three guarantees God declares through his goodness and his mercy. So let's take a look at that. We began with a snapshot of a conflict now dominated by sinful, selfish desires. This was a big conflict if Paul heard it 800 miles away. We all experienced this though, right? 
But get this, your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, your adoption papers when God brought you into his family are sealed in the book of life, like it says in verse 3. Struggling with sin does not mean your citizenship gets revoked. Otherwise, heaven would be empty. Take comfort in this, not just in the assurance of your salvation, but also in the assurance that you are not alone. We all struggle with sin. This is what it means to be free of the penalty of sin. If you don't struggle with sin, it means you've surrendered to it or you've become complacent. And that will require you to do some serious self-reflection to see whether or not the joy of your salvation is genuine or not. But for those who truly belong to Christ, when we fail, there is grace upon grace ready to be showered upon you when you fall. Not if you fall, when you fall. Our second guarantee is that almighty creator God of the universe promises his help and presence. The end of verse 5 says, the Lord is at hand. This phrase in Greek is filled with meaning and includes the idea of God's nearness, his very presence in the process, how you have but to reach out and he's there to take hold of your hand. It's also a promise of his return, when one day we will be free from the presence of sin as we bask in the glory of his sinless presence and become like him in this way. Our God is the one who paid the penalty for our sin and reconciled us back to him. But he also, this promise also reminds us that he's the comforter, that he's the one that promises to never leave us nor forsake us. Perhaps you're thinking, sure, Ben, that's, that's easy for you to say. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what's been done to me. And you're right, I don't. But I know someone who does. His name's Jesus. The God who took on flesh and hung upon that cross and experienced your pain. He he didn't experience a pain like yours. He experienced your pain. Scripture says he carried our suffering and our sorrow. On the cross, Jesus took the penalty as the abuser, but he also took the pain as the abused. Only God could do both. He's your source of comfort, not not me or someone with a, a vaguely similar story. He already knows your pain. Take comfort in this fact and reach out and share it with him and exchange that pain for his healing process. For by his stripes, we are healed. Our third guarantee is is mentioned not once but twice, kind of like the rejoice thing, so we should really pay attention to it. Verse 7 says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we're, we're dedicating our life to pleasing him, when we're offering our concerns and cares to him, when we're rejoicing in our faith, this peace is a promise. It's restated again in verse 9, and that God of peace will be with you. When you are living a life dedicated to pleasing God, you will experience peace. If you are a true citizen of heaven, you can't be disqualified of your, uh, because of your struggle with sin and its effects in your life. 
If you are a true citizen of heaven, you cannot escape God's presence because the Holy Spirit lives in you. But did you know that as a citizen, you can forfeit the peace of God? You do this not because of what someone does to you or did to you in the past, not because circumstances didn't go your way, not because of the terrible suffering that you're experiencing right now, but because of, because of how you are choosing to respond to those things right now in the one place that you are responsible, responsible for because you have control over it. Your mind, your thoughts, your heart, your immaterial being. This is what it means to be free of the power of sin. Before Jesus, you always chose sin in your heart. You had no choice because you were a slave to sin. You always responded to life circumstances and difficult people with sin. But now you have a choice because Jesus broke those chains and now you have a choice to please God in your response or please yourself. And guess what? Pleasing yourself is always sin. It's actually possible to choose to please God. Scripture promises that believers are at peace with God because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross where he paid the penalty for our sin. But the peace of God is contingent on whether or not we are walking by the spirit or walking by the flesh. Whether we are in the moment pleasing God or pleasing self. And guys, this can come and go a hundred times a day, depending on how you respond to people and circumstances. You can be assured, this is super important, you can be assured of your eternal destiny in heaven because you have peace with God through Jesus and still be miserable, anxious, angry, embittered, afraid, and totally without the peace of God in that moment. But the true citizen of heaven won't stay there because of the work of the conscience and because of the work of the Holy Spirit within you, urging you to return to that peace, to renew that right spirit, to confess, to repent, like it says in Psalm 51. When you do this, when your conscience is clean, when you're rejoicing in your salvation regularly, when you're trusting in his sovereignty with your concerns, your, your, your struggle against sin, when you're practicing this daily sacrifice of your desires in order to please God, then the byproduct will be the inexplicable peace of God that makes no sense, that surpasses all understanding, that shouldn't be there based on the difficult people in your life and the horrible experiences that you're going through. We can't explain that because it's not of man. It's of God. That's where it comes from. That's the guarantee. And, and the more you practice living in that peace, it becomes a guard, a fortress for your heart, a stronghold. Like it says in verse 7, the peace of God will guard, will keep. Maintaining the peace of God actually becomes easier as it becomes a habit you embrace. Paul reiterates this truth over and over again in this letter to the church in Philippi. Paul could rejoice, be content, and experience the peace of God even in the midst of his unjust imprisonment and all the trials and all the betrayals 
and all the people who stabbed him in the back and all the people who tried to kill him, all the abuse he suffered because he was, he is, he was committed to pleasing God in all situations and circumstances. Ever feel anxious? Worried, torn in multiple directions? Would you like to replace that with the peace of God? Would you like to replace anger, bitterness, and hopelessness with joy, reconciliation, and hope? It can be hard to realize, but it's closer than you think. So, Janie, can you uh, also share a little bit about what God needed to do in your heart um, in order to, to bring about that, that healing process and, and move you to a place of, of forgiveness and freedom? What did that take? <laughs> a sledgehammer, <laughs> <laughs> truly. Um, I think making the choice to walk towards him every day, every minute, because I wanted to take it, I wanted to grab it back all the time. But I knew that God just kept laying on my heart that this is mine, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. Vengeance is mine. You do not have to repay. I will repay from Romans. And um, it was a daily giving up and saying, just take it from me, take it from me, take it from me, take it from me. Replace my heart of stone with the heart of flesh. Because at that time, I had a huge heart of stone. And you know, when God works on us and transforms us, it's not like we go, oh, we're done. There you go. There you go. Let's go. Right. I've arrived. Like, like Derek said last week, you never arrive, right? You're always a work in progress. And mm -hmm. I think I knew I was getting there by the lightning of my countenance, the lightning of my spirit, the lightning of my heart. Um, I learned to trust again, right? Um, I don't trust easily. And um, the fact that I've been married for almost 36 years is huge in my mind because that's a, a really intimate, long-standing relationship. That's, you know, as we all know, anyone's been married, it's not always easy at times. And um, to have that, to be able to trust like that, because I know a lot of women that have been through sexual abuse and physical abuse that don't trust at all. And I think that God wants us to have that freedom, but we have to do the work. We have to make those choices to get there every day. It doesn't just happen, right? It's a day by day and sometimes minute by minute choice to trust, to keep letting go, to keep asking him to lay on our hearts to let go. What's the one thing that you would want for them to hear from you about how God has worked in and through something horrible in order to glorify himself? to trust him. And even when you don't feel like you should, or that maybe he's not trustworthy, he is. Because um, we don't see the end. And we don't see where he wants to take us. We only see the foxhole we're in. And there's so much more out there that he wants for us. But until we let go and trust him and forgive whatever there is to forgive or forgive ourselves, we can never get to freedom. We can't get there. Jeannie describes this amazing exchange that happened on the cross where Jesus exchanged the, the righteous penalty that we deserved, the wrath of God, where Jesus exchanged that for peace with God. He didn't deserve that. 
but he also took that sin and that pain and exchanged that. That's why she was saying, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. He already took it. The pain, he already took that. Let go. I invite you to respond today by uh, maybe listening to the rest of Jeannie's story. Uh, we have a slide with uh, a number that you text story to, and you can go to her podcast and listen to episode four, where she, where she details this journey that she has gone through but continues to go through, um, and God's faithfulness in that. We're going to take communion this morning, and, and as we prepare to do that, I would encourage you to reflect on the joy of your salvation. Or maybe you need to confess and repent of, of anger, of, of bitterness, of, of resentment, or, or some other sin struggle. Or maybe you need to acknowledge that you don't actually have peace with God. And today is that day where you can exchange your penalty for sin with his righteousness. We're going to have a few prayer responders up in the room, and I would encourage them to go ahead and find their way to one of these corners. If you need to speak to somebody, if, if you're struggling with hurt and you don't know what to do with it, but you want to begin that journey of freedom and peace, one of these prayer, prayer responders would love to start that journey with you, to guide you through that. Let's pray. God, we just sit here in, in humble silence at the